content warning for today's episode. We are going to be talking about sexual assault, rape, self-harm, and I do mention blood. I'm your host, Nia Schachter. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm a bit gender nebulous, a term that I made up and you can use if you like it. I'm an intimacy coordinator for TV and film, a boundary guide for individuals and couples, and a consent educator. My interest in this work is mostly in consent, gender, and power dynamics. I offer Zoom classes live and for download through my website, and private consent lessons and boundary sessions too. Today I'm talking to Sydney Ray Chin, who is an intuitive sex guide, survivor coaching consultant, and a polyamorous, queer, third-generation Chinese-American woman. Hi, Sydney. Hi. It's really, I'm like really elated to be on here for a lot of reasons we will get into later today. Cool. I'm really excited to have you and also to have found you through... Um, I think we found each other in Cameron Glover's class, right? I think so too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also I know that my friend Andy Adams, yes. I think also like had dropped my name in a class that you were in. Yes. That's right. Or that's something right. Like that. That's right. Yeah. Andy and I met in Minachi's nonviolent communication class and we were in a breakout room and your name came up and I was like, man, I have to reach out to her. Like, cause you're, I think I had already been following you and I knew that you were doing really cool work. Um, and then it just felt like too kind of fortuitous. And I was like, yeah, it's time. So I'm really excited to be to have you here and to talk about the work that you do. Um, let's, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, before when I was asking you uh, how you want to be introduced, um, my brain was really stuck on this third generation Chinese American thing. And I feel like I was having um, like a mindless white lady moment of being like the, I'm pretty sure the word immigrant belongs with, third generation. And I wanted to hear you. It sounded like you had some stuff to unpack around that. And I'm, I'm super curious. Yeah. So for me, so for me, and this is not with everyone in the diaspora. I also want to make that clear that I'm only one person from the Mm -hmm. Chinese American diaspora. Mm -hmm. So I can only speak to my experiences, but my dad's dad, so my grandfather was born here in the in 1929, just before the Great Depression. And then my dad was born here. So I go by the patriarchal side of like third generation. Technically, I could be second generation because my mom came here at age five from Hong Kong, but no one knows what 2.5 gen means. Like <laughs> I don't even know what 2.5 gen means. So that's how I Go by. I know that there's some people within communities in diaspora that say that the people that immigrate here, so like what your grandparents, your parents are first gen, but that makes you second mm. gen. I don't know. It's an ongoing debate in communities that root from the root from like many diasporas that, oh, are you second gen, first gen? I don't know. But the definition I go by is that, okay, my grandfather was born here. And then my dad was born here. So therefore I'm third generation, Mm. except my family has a weird immigration history because my grandfather immigrated back to China before the great depression Hmm. and then escaped to Hong Kong during the cultural revolution. And so he had to take six to seven years to prove his American citizenship. So there was that whole thing. So like, I I feel like in my experience as a third generation Chinese American, it's very, different because there's <laughs> we're laughing because my cat just stuck her face in the camera just for anyone who can't see what's happening right now <laughs> I gotta get rid of her I gotta get rid of her you have to get out of here okay um so there's elements of the immigrant experience just because of that mm. it, particular experience of like immigrating back and forth but I wouldn't consider myself an immigrant just because I have 
so much cultural proximity to whiteness and I grew up in very white areas growing up that I feel like I'm very westernized, although there's still that intergenerational trauma from the cultural revolution and all these other things that my family has gone through that I'm still discovering and rediscovering the history because there's not, there's not a lot of records and I'm not sure where to find records if you can't read traditional characters. Right, right. Wow. Um, I'm also like, I'm just having this moment of like, thinking, trying to think about who in my family, like my great, my dad's grandfather moved here from Poland. So I'm one, two, three, like fourth, fourth generation, um, like Polish and Russian American, I guess. Um, according to him being first generation, uh, unless we're saying that the first generation is my grandfather being his child. I mean, there's both. And I feel like both are within communities of diaspora. It's like an ongoing, not debate. I don't want to call it a debate. It's an ongoing discussion that people have that people are like, I'm not sure, but this is what right. I identify as. <laughs> yeah. The thing that I've noticed within communities that have diasporic roots. Yeah. I'm like, am I sa- Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> having a brain moment. <laughs> I am too. This is also like the earliest that I have ever recorded a podcast. So I feel like we're both a little bit uh, maybe scatterbrained and we'll find our way through this episode. Um, so first I want to ask about how you got started in the work that you do. So um, I went to film school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, I actually went to Emerson. Um, hopefully they won't use this in their marketing because they didn't do anything for me, <laughs> really. Um, and in my final year, I was, no, in the summer of my final year, I was sexually assaulted at another campus. And then following that, in fall 2018, I was abroad and also sexually assaulted. And so in order to cope, I guess my way of coping was to do work in academia. So every project in my senior semester, I made it related to sexual violence because I really, I think I was just trying to find a way to cope. Now that I look look back mm. and, and reflect and it's been like, it's been three years since it all happened and, or almost three years, coming up on three years. So like two and a half or two and a quarter. I don't know. I don't know math. Um, (laughs) I started to do work in academia and through my academic classes that really reflected what I was passionate about and what I was passionate about at the time and what I'm still passionate about is ending sexual violence and particularly in higher education and so I ended up doing a project which I can't go into like too much detail because I don't have the consent of my other like the other people who participated. But it was essentially this project that I worked with performing arts graduate students to come up with intimacy coordination policies and curriculum and how it could be incorporated in the four-year coursework at Emerson within the visual media arts program. So film program for people who, yeah, don't go to the school. Um, And then the performing arts program, which was which is like live theater and stuff like that, you know, all that good stuff. And so that really got me started in the work. And I didn't know that that was literally doing consultancy level work as an undergraduate for like a class project. I didn't know that till, till literally the end of 2020. I was like, oh, wait, actually, I've done consultant level work before. I just wasn't paid for it. Right, right. Which is um, another issue. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that also brings up like, um, it just, it's making me think of like sports teams, you know, getting like um, university students who play sports, not getting any of the money that they generate for the college campuses and things like that. Um, and then that just becomes like exploitative, you know, free, free labor from your students. Um, I'm curious about uh, 
this intimacy coordination um, stuff that you're talking about at the school where you, cause intimacy coordination is a specific term used to talk about um, uh, for TV and film, like intimacy coordinators, like stunt coordinators. And that's what I do for TV. So I'm curious what was being put into place um, in, at your school. So nothing that I know of so far has been, I mean, I think there was one reference in the latest presidential recommendation for sexual violence overall, which I'm like, great. They reference work that happened. Um, So it was basically policy recommendations. So I did a whole white paper. Um, My end for, oh God, what class was it? Race, gender, and Hollywood, I think, Mm. with Professor Miranda Banks, who is a lovely, lovely professor. I believe she's at one of the California colleges right now, but I forget which one. Um, So I did a paper in that class and basically gave policy recommendations, looked at the data from the surveys that were collected in this smaller group of like, um, of students that we surveyed and did work with. Um, But I didn't do intimacy direction exercises hands-on. That was up to the graduate students that I worked with. Mm -hmm. They were studying that and I was studying the policy part of that and how to implement that and how it could be translated into the school's policy to further support supporting survivors, but also preventing sexual violence within the film program. Because at the same time that was happening, a lot of abusers were being outed at the school. So like the paper happened at a very momentous time, I guess. It kind of just made sense. There was like a weird divine time into when the paper was happening and then everything was happening at the school where the school obviously, to no surprise, Title IX does not hold abusers and rapists accountable. Um, So that came up for a lot of students and people were feeling unsafe on campus. So I incorporated that part into my paper. And it's available to read if you send in a Squarespace submission and want to like hire me for a consultant, I will definitely send you the paper. Otherwise I will not send you the paper. Good, good. Um, that's great. I'm, I'm also, I'm curious. So as you're moving into this work, um, like as a consultant, as a coach, as a guide, um, I wanted to ask you about this decision to shift to Patreon away from Instagram. Um, are you open to talking about that? Yeah. Also, I'm looking for subscribers for of my course. Patreon. So that's perfect. So am I. Um, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm, I've talked quite a bit with, with people on this show about like, um, just the, the like operations of actually running a business and being in work for yourself and the, the sort of weirdness around, um, money and like business transparency. And then also, um, like figuring out how to monetize the work that you do and account for all the backend work that like, isn't necessarily the face-to-face client relationship work. Um, and so when I saw that you were doing that, I was really struck by that. And I wanted to talk to you about um, just like the the kind of the mental and emotional hurdles around like deciding what you're worth and what you want to charge and how you want to like require that people pay you for the content that you're making. Yeah. So I did this because I w- I'm still getting fed up with IG. Like I use it for reels. I post twice a week still, but I'm trying to like offboard myself off of relying on IG because the algorithm is shit. Yeah. It targets black non-men sex workers the most. Yes. I want to also acknowledge that as a non-black sexuality professional. I think it's important to acknowledge that. Yes. Um, but overall, I've just been like, I've just been done with IG. I get frustrated every time I log on because it's like a numbers game, but in the worst way. Right. So that's why I've switched to Patreon and I've decided to make this like my more accessible offers so that people can still get the content um, that they want to see and that they like need 
So I started at $5 because I'm like, well, with all these things combined, I know that it's going to be sustainable plus having higher ticket offerings. So I do one-on-one coaching and workshops and then also consultants. So like all of that is going to be like mid to higher level offerings. So this is something for like community offerings that people can get a more inside view into my life. Cause I don't necessarily share everything on IG just because I feel like it's part of also surveillance capitalism, which I do Mm -hmm. not like, especially as a survivor. (laughs) Um, And so having it on Patreon, there's more privacy to it. And I also can see who's viewing this content and who's like really invested in not only themselves, but taking a part or taking a look at XYZ parts of my life. Because I decided on one of the tiers, I think it's the third or fourth tier, that I'll share like insights from how I'm healing, which is very, very personal Mm -hmm. to me because the healing journey is an ongoing journey. And I just don't necessarily share everything to everyone because those are just my boundaries, especially with dating as a sexuality professional. Like I, overall on IG, I don't really talk about that, but I know that people get curious. (laughs) So that's what the Patreon is for. If you're curious, I'll mention a little bit, but it's not like I'm going to take you on a tour my whole life. Right. Well, I really like this idea of like um, being willing to share really vulnerable things um, if people are willing to pay you for it. I think like part of the work that I've done in, in boundaries and consent, like on a personal level, is that well, something that I've noticed as my career has changed over the last year or two is that I used to be kind of like a, like an oversharer in, in a, in an effort to be like honest, like it was always coming from this place of like, if I don't share this information, then I'm, um, being dishonest or it's like, then I have a secret or something. And so I was always kind of, um, trying to give like the complete picture, you know, and what I've learned over the last year or two is that that is sort of like, um, I think it's related to codependency. I think it's, um, related to, uh, like not having very strong boundaries, um, it's also related to like not, not having the patience or care with myself to determine if someone else deserves all of that information from me. Um, and I, I really like the idea of being like, I'm willing to give people access to certain levels of like intimate connection with me uh, for money. (laughs) It's, it just, I love, I, I really like, um, I, you know, I like, I struggle so much with thinking about, uh, monetizing what I do, charging money, like playing into capitalist systems. And yet at the same time, uh, like that just sort of is the truth of where we are right now. And, And if I really believe that like everyone should have access to, you know, health, well-being, shelter, food, like, and some luxury, you know, like not just survival, but like actually beyond survival, enjoying their lives, um, then I have to be able to like build that for myself. Um, And so part of that is like determining how much money certain things are worth to me. Um, so how are you deciding like what, um, what you're going to share with people and then how much to charge for that? I'm fascinated by this. So I had to like sit with it before I actually like created this Patreon and things and like what I was going to put on each level and tier, And also even sitting with myself before, like taking intentional time to just sit with myself, sometimes be uncomfortable because Mm -hmm. healing is fucking uncomfortable. I feel like no one tells you that. Mm 
until you're in it um, and figuring out, okay, how much do I want to share with my audience? How much am I willing to give of myself? And also how much do I trust them to like, hey, this is like a very private thing that I'm sharing. So like things that are more private and like healing journey notes and like personal insights into my personal life, which I do not talk about on Instagram that much. I mean, I talk about it on my private IG, but that's like for friends. (laughs) So that's different. Um, But in terms of my business Instagram, I don't typically talk about people that I'm currently dating. That's just like a boundary that I set up and like learned in the last year. Like, nope, not including the people that I date in my business. Like maybe I'll tell them to like XYZ posts. I'll send them a post every now and then or tell them I'm doing XYZ. But other than that, you're not really involved in my business because this is my baby (laughs) and I love it. And that's just I guess like a big boundary that I've learned in 2020 that I'm bringing with me and fortifying more in this year in 2021. And also um, in terms of pricing for Patreon, I think I wanted to make it affordable, but also like, okay, if you're really learning personal information, it at least has to be like 30 plus dollars to learn about that part of my life. Cause that's, I'm, as I've gotten more traction on IG, which I ugh, I don't like the words fame or anything like that, it just makes me feel icky because it's very tied to capitalism. But as my work has gotten more recognized, I guess, within the survivorship community, but also in the sexuality community at large, um, I've noticed that I've gotten more private about my private life. And just like, unless you're like my friend or like in a like inner circle closer to me. I'm not going to talk about my private life and specifically who I'm dating, et cetera, unless I really, really know the people that I'm talking to because yeah, I just monetizing that part of my life just does not, it feels weird to me personally. So that's why even in my Patreon, I like to um, keep it vague. I don't name names. The only time that I've ever named a name is probably if I'm like calling out someone, which I also don't really do that much. And then also what else? Oh, if I'm, God, I'm blanking on the other thing. Naming someone. Oh, if I'm no longer associated with them. So Mm. like I was fine with, or I, I'm now fine with naming my ex-partner because I'm like, I don't associate with him anymore. He's not a part of my like circle anymore. So I'm fine with like naming people in that regard. But most of the time I don't name people just because it creates a certain type of intimacy between me and the person so that we can have our thing, but also so that my friend, my friends will know who the person is. So like, yeah. My Patreon is now a community site for DIY self-paced learning. I share assignments, journal prompts, media examples of consent and boundaries, discount codes, my own writing on boundaries and consent, the medical industry, and other things that I'm thinking about all the time. I share papers, articles, lectures, and more. And you also get access to the Patreon-only Discord channel. Patreon is a great way to support the show, but there are other ways that don't cost money. You can rate, subscribe, and write a review wherever you listen and share the show with your friends. All of that is deeply appreciated. I'm currently taking private clients. You can find out more about that in the work with me tab on my website, sharetheloadinc.com and schedule a call to see if we're a good fit. I'm so excited to share that my guitar teacher, Amelie Rousseau, who goes by her stage name, Sophia Bolt, is taking on new students. I grew up learning classical piano from Russian piano teachers who taught me Bach and Mozart and Beethoven. That's a beautiful thing, but it is not what I wanna be doing anymore. 
I went to Amelie saying, I need to find my confidence. I need to find what I like. I need to learn how to improvise, how to make things sound how I want them to sound, not to just play things that other people wrote. And over the last year and a half, including during COVID, we moved to Zoom lessons. I, I am stunned at how much I have improved under Amelie's wonderful guiding hand. I cannot recommend Amelie's lessons enough. So if you want to contact her for that, you can go to sophiabolt.com. She's also a highly efficient music producer and has worked with Grammy-nominated musicians and engineers. She can help you obtain, these are her words, the highest quality sounds for your musical projects, films, podcasts, and she charges on a sliding scale. You can also find that information at sophiabolt.com. Amelie is rad. If you think you want to work with her, you do. Yeah. I gotta think more about this idea because like there's the super squicky aspect of like you know are we commodifying intimacy and privacy and are we like um you know using um certain forms of surveillance to uh to like give or withhold access like there's a lot of really complicated stuff involved in this decision-making that you're doing. And, you know, clearly you're thinking about it um, really, really clearly and thoughtfully and critically um, and also slowly, like you're not making any um, quick, quick decisions here. Um, the, you know, the ways that like uh, that access is sort of expected by certain people um, online through social media I really appreciate that you're kind of thwarting that and being like, yeah, you can have it, but you have to pay me. Um, Cause there's so, there's such an expectation that like, that, that certain kinds of access should be free or because information is needed and lacking that it should be free. Um, you know, like especially consent education, I've, I've heard that so much, like this should be free. And, and I'm like, yeah, if you want to find like your, if you want to get your school to pay me, then it can be free to you. Um, you know, like, sure. In my, in my dream world in which the government is subsidizing this education for everybody, it should be free to you. But like, I have to get paid for the work that I'm doing and I can't give this away for free, you know? Yeah. And also that connects a lot to my survivorship experience too, because so much of the title nine process is just these administrative people who don't, who aren't trauma informed. First of all, a lot of these places are not trauma informed. They don't know what the fuck trauma informed means. They really don't. They say they do, but they don't in practice um they just thwart free emotional labor from these people survivors who are already traumatized mm -hmm. so you're being re-traumatized and asked to do additional free unpaid emotional labor for people who should have their shit together frankly frankly they need their shit together to be very frank um but instead they're having student survivors do unpaid labor for them like that's very fucked up on multiple levels because, okay, you already survived rape, intimate partner violence on campus, and then you're having the admins reap free emotional labor for you. No, that's why I charge high prices when I'm working with these people because I'm a survivor who's literally survived the re-traumatization, the secondary trauma that Title IX brings on to survivors. And so that's why I believe that I need to charge high prices and I raise my rates because it's a lot of emotional labor. And also it's like possibly re-traumatizing and triggering my own experiences that I've been through mm -hmm. with talking to these people. Cause I know that I can get activated when I'm talking about title nine and my experiences, because it was honestly the most re-traumatizing period of my life. Yeah. Oh, 
Well, so I'd be curious to hear, um, I, I kind of want to let it rip about Title IX a little bit, if you want to, like, just tear into it. Oh, yeah. Let me get on my soapbox. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm giving you a soapbox. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of problems with Title IX. First, I want to also acknowledge that the main author of Title IX is an Asian-American woman. I feel like a lot of white survivors within the campus survivorship community space forget this. And that's important because I, first of all, <laughs> within the survivorship space, there's a lot of white cishet woman survivors taking space and not mm -hmm. making space for survivors of color who have varying experiences, obviously dependent on their light skin privilege. So colorism, social economic status, et cetera, et cetera. Again, I also want to note that my experience as a light-skinned East Asian woman, I'm, you may not be able to see me unless you're seeing watching the YouTube, this on YouTube. Yeah. watching this on YouTube, but I have a lot of privilege even within my community. So I also want to acknowledge that while we're having this discussion, because it's important. So I'm sure that even what I felt was the brunt, I know that people are getting it worse than me because I have this proximity to whiteness that and white adjacency privilege that protects me within these processes that I know that I can be more protected than other people who, who don't have light skin privilege and who don't share these other privileges that I do have. So I wanted to note that, but still whew, within the survivorship space, I see a lot of white women, cishet survivors that don't make space for other people, particularly survivors of color who already have intergenerational trauma mm -hmm. and also ongoing racial trauma from schools just being horrible to BIPOC students, <laughs> um, which is a whole nother issue, but also ties into free emotional labor and what we're talking about. Very much. Um, and also like the fact that people don't even acknowledge that Patty Minksy, is an Asian American woman, like don't erase that part of history because that's important to Title IX and who has been doing the work, which are black, brown, and other people and other women and non-men of color. Mm -hmm. And I want, or I need, not want, mm -hmm. it's a need, it's a demand <laughs> yeah. for white survivors, campus survivors to acknowledge that. Okay, so that's the first part of my soapbox. <laughs> Great. Well, so can I ask you some questions? I want to ask you some questions to maybe um, help clarify. Um, what, what about Title IX where, where it's seemingly trying to help, and I put that in quotes, um, where is it like going wrong? Where do I begin? <laughs> I mean, because I, I mean, I'm sure that there's places where there's just like blatant things that are like not good about it. But mm -hmm. I'm, I'm specifically curious about like the things that are sort of put in place that are meant to help that mm -hmm. are actually turning out to be detrimental. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Okay. So like, I think the way that the process is and this is only my experience at Illinois Institute of Technology, which I'm very happy to call out because they have not done anything for me in the year that I've dropped or filed and dropped a Title IX. They mm. still owe me <laughs> emotional labor compensation. Yes. Um, so if they want me to invoice them or, you know, do Title IX consulting for your school, I'm very happy to help with that because uh, y'all need to do better. Mm. Yes, it's a point blank. Um, I think the process of which they give informed consent is not informed consent. They claim it to be informed consent, but I was told, at least in the process, after I filed the complaint, so then someone reached out to me, and then they were like, just sign these forms, but they didn't give me the, the terms and my rights in layman's, because it's all this like legal jargon, and like, okay, mm -hmm. what? college student or even post-grad is going to know fucking legal jargon. No one That's knows legal jargon. That's a really good fucking, point. Like, okay, you can give me a student handbook and tell me to, like, you're telling me to do the labor 
after I, I wrote, I complained to y'all, you guys, like, I, 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 like, that's the first part of the process that I find really fucked up. Cause I think that there needs to be more directive, affirmative, informed consent. Like when you go to the doctor's office, they tell you what all the side effects are. If you're, if you're, you're lucky. Blood, yeah. If, if you're, you're lucky. lucky. True. If you're lucky. <laughs> But yeah, hopefully, or in an ideal world, it would be like at one of those doctor's offices that gives you the the informed consent form. They tell you the side effects all in terms that you can understand. So that's like one of the challenges I feel like of Title IX that they they don't give students terms that they can understand. How are you going to read a fucking handbook? Also, if you're in school, how are you going to have time to read a handbook? Yeah. You have schoolwork. <laughs> like, that's just an extra thing to do. And to expect someone to complete and sign these forms while not knowing the jargon within, like, oh, God, was it, like, 72 hours? They wanted me to send it to them before I met with them, hmm. which was, like, I don't think that's enough time to review. Also, that's not enough time to, like, inform me that I could have a survivor advocate because I wasn't informed of that. I had to talk to the survivor advocate from Emerson College who told me a lot more. And that's how I learned about more about Title IX because Greta at Healing and Advocacy Collective at Emerson like walked me through all these things that, oh, I didn't know because there's all this legal jargon and no one tells survivors that this is like part of the process. They just, oh, and the other thing is that they give you the, they don't give you an option, but the only option that you're given is to report. So then what do you do if you don't want to report, but you also want to hold the person accountable? What, what can you do? Uh, well, there's private accounts, but also I'm not sure how much these student groups are able to hold the school accountable because the school also has general counsel as part of their title nine and sexual misconduct processes, which is a whole, uh, that they just don't need to be part of title nine. Like how I don't, can you explain that? I don't know what general counsel means. So it's the lawyers for the school, if that makes sense. So the representing the school and sometimes representing the person that you named within the complaint um, not always, but I think that happens sometimes. I may be wrong, but I believe that happens sometimes. But they support the school and what the school wants to do to essentially, essentially general counsel is there to cover up the mess because they already know that they're making a mess. So it's just there to push survivors and coerce survivors into reporting because I feel like what you get at freshman orientation, you're told to just report to Title IX, but no one tells you how re-traumatizing the experience can be. They just tell you report. That's the only thing that you can do to hold this person accountable. Mm -hmm. There's not other alternatives if you don't want to report. And I hate that because no one's obligated to report. And also it's a very personal decision if you want to report. It took me a year and a half, no, Maybe it was a year. Yeah, a year and a half, a fourth to decide that I wanted to file a complaint. And that complaint never went anywhere because A, I dropped it. And B, they were just like giving me heinous excuses during a pandemic Mm -hmm. as to why they couldn't hold this person accountable. So these alternatives to, to reporting, you said there are private accounts. What does that mean? So I know on IG, there's like Instagram accounts run typically by students and student activists and survivor activists on campuses that you can like share your story and name, not necessarily name the people by name, but name the institutions and organizations that are complicit in them, um, in what has happened to you. And so in the past when I wasn't ready to share my story with my face to it and name, I used these accounts because it was a way to cope with 
what was going on in Title IX because also part of the Title IX process, there's this heinous retaliation policy that does not need to exist yeah, for let's survivors. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so if you say anything publicly or in different forms, so social media, et cetera, it can be used against you because it's retaliated, even though it's telling the truth of what happened and also survivors need support. And I feel like schools forget that and apply the rules of retaliation to survivors, which honestly does not make any fucking sense. It doesn't. And for me personally, it made the whole <sighs> Title IX process just super lonely because I could only talk to my therapist and I felt the safest talking through Signal to my ex-partner who was my friend at the time. So I was able to talk to him and to her. And then the other people that were in my circle at the time didn't necessarily understand the gravity of Title IX and understand why it was so traumatizing. So I didn't have a lot of support because I felt like, oh, if I say something on social media, on Facebook, in these support groups, I'm going to be found out. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be the one in trouble, which is fucked up because why, why the hell should I be in trouble for supposedly doing the right thing? The, right. the thing that you're supposed to do to get justice. Mm. It's ridiculous. Okay. So I, is there anything in title nine that you think is a positive thing? Um, ooh. I feel like, okay, I'm going to shout out Know Your Nine, okay. who's an awesome um, survivor-led and student-led movement. Um, they're really great. They helped me through my Title IX process. I know that's not directly like, that's like a nationwide nonprofit organization um, that I want to shout out because all of them like really helped me through the process. I know that's not like in the Title IX policy, but like, mm-hmm. I feel like that's a positive that has come out of Title IX organizing in particular. Um, I feel like the positives, at, I'm not sure if this is at every school, but at least the one that I followed at and at my alma mater, having a survivor advocate was so fucking helpful mm-hmm. <laughs> because she knew more of the policies and knew more of this legal jargon that was thrown at me. Um, that now I'm beginning to learn more about, especially being on the consultancy side. Um, I feel like that's a really great positive. And if your school has a survivor advocate, like definitely get one if you can't get a lawyer because you're also allowed to have a lawyer, which no one tells you, but I'm going to tell you. (laughs) Um, So for all the students out there, you're allowed to have a lawyer letting you know and that may be able to be helpful um because they can do certain things that the survivor advocate can't um but just having a survivor advocate was totally a positive part of the title IX process for me because it allowed me to have an additional support outside of my friend outside of my ex-best friend and outside of my therapist and so that really helped me through the process i mean Obviously, it was still re-traumatizing, but it did have a little more, like, harm reduction. And so, like, I wasn't as traumatized or as triggered having her in my meetings with me. Mm-hmm. That was the super helpful part. So I totally recommend that um, to anyone or a lawyer, again, if you can afford one. But it's really hard to get lawyers, I know, yeah, because it's a whole process. Right. The survivor advocate... Um, uh, concept is, is really cool. And it's making me think of, um, there's, there's like these studies that talk about how, um, when you're in the wake of a traumatic event, whether it's like a car accident or an assault, um, if you basically like phone a friend, um, quickly, like, you know, the sooner, the better, um, the you're less likely to develop symptoms of PTSD. So, you know, that's really useful if you get into a car accident, like call someone that you can talk to about it. Um, obviously after probably calling 911 though, there's loads of stories of like that not even being helpful. Um, but 
you know, like the, the sooner that you can after a traumatic event, uh, to, to talk about the event and, and, um, with someone that you feel supported by. So like not a cop, not a, um, Oh, like I, when I was in college, I was in a locker room, um, changing before my dance class and this woman who had been in one of my classes before, um, before she had transitioned, uh, like called out from the shower, something like, can you hold, hold this shirt or like something like that? Like while I do something and I didn't recognize her yet. And I, I did it. And then she came out of the shower and had, had cut herself, um, like intentionally below, I think like on her thigh. Um, and, and there was blood everywhere. And I, and, and I, and then we recognized each other. And so it was this like really shocking thing. And she just like profusely apologized to me and grabbed her stuff and ran out, like still wet from the shower with like blood dripping down her leg. And I was, I mean, I was, shaken, like absolutely shaken. And, um, and I like found someone, I, you know, it's kind of a blur. I, I found someone and was like, I don't know if she's okay. Like it was the middle of winter in New York city and she had like run out of the gym. Um, and I was like, I, you know, I, I just don't know if she's okay. Like, I don't know what to do. And there was like blood all over the bathroom. I mean, it was just, it was awful. And, the series of events that happened after that, I actually have a, a, I'm in my writing class at the time, like did a project writing about this um, and read it recently. But the, the number of cops I had to talk to, the number of um, like authority figures, there was like, cause I went to Columbia and this was, my dance class was at Barnard across the street. And so they wouldn't let me, like the, the Barnard campus therapist wouldn't talk to me. Like I went into her office cause the cops like ushered me to her office and they were like, talk to her. And she was like, I actually can't talk to you because you're a Columbia student. And so like the, they have your paperwork in their mental health office and I can't talk to you. And I was like, you're telling me that like, as a therapist right now, you're not allowed to have a conversation with me after a traumatic event. And she was like, yeah, I'm sorry. And I like got my things and left. And then, um, and I had to like recount this story over and over and over again. And obviously like this wasn't a sexual assault. This was not. Um, and even at the time I was like, I'm not the one who's hurt. Like there's a trans woman like running down Broadway bleeding and like no one's trying to do anything about that. And it was it was horribly traumatizing and re-traumatizing over and over again. So hearing you talk about this Title IX stuff like is reminding me of really like the reporting process of absolutely anything on college campuses and like the ridiculousness of the bureaucratic, the paperwork and all the stuff that you have to do in order to get help. And then like, even the people who are there to help you are not helping. And they're in fact, like causing further harm. And the, you know, the questions that I was being like interrogated with were like, did you touch the blood? I mean, it was all like HIV, hysteria type of thing. Like all of it was just horrifying. Um, so anyway, I, I think I started talking about that because I was thinking about the way that you're explaining that title nine, like re-traumatizes people because you have to like tell your story over and over again, and then no one's really helping you. Um, and just how like pervasive that whole thing is in colleges like in universities that's just that seems to just be how they operate it's it's infuriating yeah they all seem to operate from this capitalistic business standpoint which even then they don't even help themselves business-wise speaking as a business owner like that part of myself yeah the fact that you don't listen to your students like that seems like a bad business (laughs) yeah uh, okay um and then also they operate from this carceral justice standpoint where the only solution is to report report 
-hmm. where we don't get to talk about other forms of justice. So like the thing that I found liberating after my whole Title IX experience was coming across Hattie Wig Healing and Trauma-Informed Working Group Philly, um, which is a collective that I'm a part of and that I'm very happy to be a part of. And finding out about transformed justice. I mean, I didn't necessarily have the words for it at the time when I was like trying to figure out what's the justice that I want with the person mm. who harmed me. Right. Um, at the time I just had words like, okay, I just want this person to like get help and, you know, get therapy for themselves. And I still want them to get therapy should they choose to engage and also engage in a dialogue with me so they understand how they impacted me. Um, but I don't think that will happen. We'll see. Mm. I mean, I'm only 23 right now, so who knows what could happen in the next 20 years? Um, (laughs) hopefully, I mean, I still hope that they want to transform themselves for themselves, not because everyone else wants them to transform. Um, and then I came across transform justice through this collective. And so I've been, learning it and becoming a student of it. I still have a lot more to study. Um, I also want to give flowers to people like Miriam Cobb, Kaba, um, Mia Mingus, Leah Lakshmi, mm-hmm. who are all big thinkers and fas- TJ facilitators. And I'm really inspired by their work and also um, hope that universities can start at least considering restorative and transformed justice, depending on the situation. Yeah, obviously. Wait, let's but, just um, let's just talk about huh? them for a second. Miriam Kaba did a really phenomenal um, interview with um, Adrian Marie Brown and Autumn Brown on their podcast, um, and yeah, like speaks incredibly about transformative justice and and kind of like building her own practice of it. Um, and I just, just for people who don't know, Mia Mingus and Lakshmi, um, I have to read her last name. Parapin, do you know what her last name is? I don't know what their, I know it's Leah Lakshmi and then I can't pronounce their second half of their last name. It's a, yeah, it's a very long last name. I'm going to look it up because I don't like just being like, I don't know how to say this. Um, and then Mia, uh, both of them are uh, disability justice writers. Oh yeah. It's Leah Lakshmi Piepzna Samarasina. I'm sure I didn't say that right, but that's, I tried. Um, <laughs> uh, both of them write about uh, disability justice and transformative justice, um, like particularly within that space. I really love the fact that it is about community, community building and community care, which is something pod mapping from Mia Mingus. Everyone should check that out Mm. to keep yourself accountable, but also keep people in your circle accountable. Um, Like your friends and other people who are like your support system. Um, I really love that their work is from a survivor perspective, but also bringing in disability justice because there's so many survivors who are disabled, whether it's invisible disabilities or um, visible disabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, you can also get PTSD from this whole reporting process. I wanted to know that as well. And like, um, that's also, I feel like a big experience or a big part of my survivorship journey healing journey that like they both really helped me embrace my disabilities more especially my PTSD because I've I guess I was I I I guess I still have some shame behind that and that's sometimes hard to admit yeah um but I was very ashamed of the fact that I had PTSD and couldn't remember. Like I used to have really great (laughs) photographic memory as a kid, but ever since all this trauma happened three years ago, like I have short-term memory. Um, It's really hard to remember simple things, even like things about my friends that are really close to me. Sometimes I'll forgive them because of my PTSD. And so finding their work was super empowering because 
it affirmed everything that I had been going through. And also it was liberating for me because I realized, oh, I didn't need to report. I just needed community support and community accountability, which is hard to have it happen on college campuses. I feel like it's slowly changing due to student pushback now, but it's still, I mean, there's still no accountability from institutions. But at least students are trying to push back for it at the yeah. same time. Oof. Okay. Well, Sydney, this has been super enlightening. I've never spoken to anyone with like such a depth of knowledge around Title IX. And I've I've known that it was problematic, but like not in this. I'm, I was not aware of like the specific ways that it um, is harmful. So I've really appreciate talking to you about this. Um, can you share, I mean, you've already shared like several influences um, for you, but I'd be curious what your kind of like three main influential, um, whether they're like moments, conversations, people in your life, pieces of media, things you've read, um, just like the ch three chief influences that have brought you to the way that you think today. Um, so I was actually an African-American and Africana studies minor, um, which I don't really talk about a lot, but mm -hmm. I, um, that was what I minored in. So taking all of those classes were really influential, but the writer that I found most influential from those classes was Audrey Lord. Her essay on self-care was really pivotal. It was not only in an academic sense, but also like in a I can apply this to my life sense. Um, and it's something that I still think about how like, especially as an Asian American woman, self-care and rest is really revolutionary. And so like, that's something from her essay that I have brought with me because in college, I used to burn myself out a lot. Like I had a part-time job. Um, what else? I was on like two, no, I was also a part of like, committees for like the school and doing work there so unpaid student labor yeah various e-boards and then also like the intercultural student committee had like commitments um and then I was also doing I don't know art stuff oh producing films <laughs> in undergrad which takes up a lot of your weekends and time um and evenings so I was up late all the time now i still am up late but for my own enjoyment um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and also I was part of these student like I was a student representative in my final semester and even then I was burning myself out even though I wasn't doing as much um, so rest especially from Audrey Lord's essay on self-care that's something that's really stuck with me and has really influenced how I move about the world and how I operate my business because especially realizing in the last couple of years that, oh, my body's not the same. Like hmm. PTSD can really take a hit on your physical health too. So like when I have flare ups, I feel nauseous, can't look at a screen and I have to account for that. And so now I've been incorporating more rest into my schedule as a self-employed person. Cause I'm like, yeah. now I have all the time to do that. And even now when looking for full-time work within tech, I'm still going to look for companies that account for and support me working, working within the limitations that sometimes come up for me. Cause I need that. Um, and then the second influence I feel like in the last in 2020 was joining the healing and trauma-informed working group Philly or Hattie Wake, um, meeting everyone in that collective, especially Carol, who is at Higher Priestess. Hi, Carol. I'm <laughs> shouting you out. Um, um, meeting Carol especially has been so pivotal because I've learned so much from her, but also everyone else in the collective and just finding solidarity with other survivors and doing this work together because I can only do so much as an individual, but when you do this work in a collective 
and do this work in a way that's is just, uh, sustainable for everyone and at everyone's pace where it's slow, not necessarily with urgency because urgency is also part of white supremacy culture. Yes. Yep. Um, uh, that's been really pivotal and that's been like a huge influence on my life in the last year and a half. And then I would say the third influence would really be my ancestors and my grandparents. Um, I know that they've had a lot of burnout, but also like my grandfather in particular who passed away about three years ago, coming up, it will be three years. Um, he was a really big part of my life and he was one of those entrepreneurs who just did not give a fuck. And so I think I get that attitude from him where I am like, I don't give a fuck. Like uh, in terms of like telling whatever takes that I have in terms of calling in or calling out people. Mm. I think I got a lot of that from him and he continues to inspire me. And he's also, he's also someone that I give homage to and he's someone that I still talk to through my intuitive practices and like ancestral practices. Um, So he's been a really big influence on my life and like, learning to grieve from his death three years ago was the catalyst to honestly helping me find this path because after he passed I got like a nudge a spiritual nudge from him to leave the person who was abusing me because I knew that there was something not wrong I didn't want to admit it to myself I didn't know what was happening but I just got this nudge from spirit which now I understand is my grandfather who was like hey you need to leave this and do this. And also the reason that I studied abroad in Hong Kong was because of my grandfather. So all these things have led to this moment and I'm just exactly where I need to be because of his influence, both in his waking life that he had, but also in the beyond the veil or whatever we want to call it. (laughs) Yeah, that's beautiful. I love how you put that. Well, Gosh, thank you, Sydney. Um, Can you tell everyone where they can find you? Yes. My website is S-Y-D-N-E-Y-R-A-E-C-H-I-N.com. I'm also on IG at my main account. And I also have a backup account that I don't really use, but it's a backup account just in case. Um, My main account is also S-Y-D-N-E-Y-R-A-E-C-H-I-N. And then my uh, backup account is Intuitive Survivor Guide. I'm also on TikTok, also as Intuitive Survivor Guide. I sometimes use that. Um, But the best place to find me and to figure out how to work with me is either through sending a submission through my website or um, emailing me at my email, which is just S-Y-D-N-E-Y-R-A-E-C-H-I-N at gmail.com. Really easy. Well, I also spell my name out for people. My last name is always um, missing a letter somehow. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Sydney. It's been such a pleasure. And I look forward to seeing what comes next for you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. This was a blast. <laughs> Good. I am. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Consent Wizard. The show is produced and edited by Stella Hartman. Beginning and ending music is by me. There's sometimes other music by my friend Tyler Field. The podcast logo is by Candace Ploy Goodman. For contact information for these exceptionally talented people, or to ask a question about boundaries and consent that I'll answer on the show, you can email podcast at sharetheloadinc.com. Mm-hmm.